This is Inputs, the podcast by Top Crop Manager, Canada's national source for the latest agronomic research, crop production, and technology trends. You've tuned in to hear conversations about relevant research, best production practices, and everything in between. If I asked you, what's the most important tool on your farm? You'd probably think of tractors, trucks, and implements first. But it's actually something much bigger than that. Your soil is the most important equipment you own. The real question is, are you doing enough to keep it running at peak performance? Nutrient Smart Nutrition MAP plus MST is engineered with patented micronized sulfur technology to refuel your soil for maximum yields. Learn how to tune up your soil at smartnutritionmst.com. Hi, my name is Alex Bernard, editor for Top Crop Manager East, and I'm speaking today with Tracy Ryan of Living Labs Ontario and the Ontario Soil and Crops Improvement Association. So if you could give us a little bit of an introduction about yourself, what are your roles with both Living Labs and OSCIA, and how did you get involved? Great. Well, I am the Applied Research Coordinator for Ontario Soil and Crop Improvement Association, and I joined OSCIA in late 2020. So when I came on board, I had a few projects and Living Lab is is certainly one of the ones that I was fortunate to get on board with. I am considered the co-lead for the Ontario Living Lab. Ontario Soil and Crop is the lead agency for the Living Lab. We have a variety of other partners involved in Living Lab, which includes Innovative Farmers of Ontario, Ontario Soil Network, Ecological Farmers Association of Ontario, as well as Lower Thames. Upper Thames and Essex Region Conservation Authority. And of course, the uh, funding partner is Agriculture and Agri-Food Canada. So we have a co-lead from Agriculture and Agri-Food Canada, who's Pam Josie. So that's a lot of disparate groups, all with similar visions, but it's a lot to kind of manage and bring together. Yes. So uh, to explain my role, I herd cats. No, actually, it, I, I get the opportunity to work with all of those groups and to uh, bring together all of their strengths. It's a collaborative process, so we spend a lot of time learning from each other and collaborating on on ways that we can implement and share the research coming out of the Living Lab project and also just uh, keeping things on track. So we have been doing Living Lab since officially 2019, although we really didn't get underway until 2021. And so we have been working with a group of farmers. There are six cooperators involved doing projects. They're innovating projects because the first living lab was all about innovations that would advance water quality improvements and soil health. And so we work with those innovators as well as then all the researchers who are who are working with those individuals on their farms. Okay. Yeah, I know each of the living labs in the different provinces have kind of a different focus. So Ontario is mainly soil and water quality? Yes. Yes, mainly. It's focused on Lake Erie because of course Lake Erie at the time when Living Labs was envisioned in 2018, water quality and Lake Erie was was very much top of mind. So our producers tend to be located in in Lake Erie and are all working on similar but different approaches and to see what we can do to increase cover crops, to reduce tillage and, you know, implement systems that can work to both be profitable and environmentally sustainable. Excellent. 
Could you describe a couple of the projects that are currently underway? Sure. Like I said, we are really fortunate that we're working with some very unique and, and interesting projects. We have Ken Lang, who's working on uh, mid-scale no-till and using no-till in cover crops in vegetable production. Specifically, he trialed a number of different options and in Living Lab, we co-develop. So working with both the researchers and looking at the results, he's focused in on no-till potatoes and no-till garlic. We have Woody Van Arkel, who is looking at planting green. And so he's been doing a number of trials on planting into subterranean clover. He's also planted into white clover and making changes to try to make that work. He's had improving results, although he's not at the stage where he would call it a success. But Woody's certainly uh, committed to continuing to try these ideas. And and he shares a lot of information and, and learns from a lot of, of producers across North America and Europe and how to make this system work in Ontario. We also have Henry Denotter, who's well known on uh, no-till and, and his cover crop of buckwheat. So there's been a quite a bit of water quality instrumentation put on to measure what's coming off his field, both from the surface and subsurface. So researchers can start to get an idea of where those pathways that are that are happening in response to those cropping practices. And we have Greg Vermeersch. He's been looking at relay cropping and intercropping. And again, his whole point is trying to bring these items up to scale for an individual with you know a lot of acres there can be a great benefit economically by just getting these systems to work and fine-tuning them. So he's he's looking at how to scale this so that you can get those improvements financially as well with the environmental sustainability. And who else do we have? Brett Israel, a well-known innovator from the organic side. And Brett's got a whole bunch of things on the go, but again, double cropping and finding great success. And as well, he's been trialing out what he calls alfalfa-fueled corn. So, oh, and Mike Groot, Wholesome Pastures. He's put pastures into his crop system on a six-year rotation. So he's looking at having pasture involved in his rotation and finding out whether it can compete with his other crops. And, And does that make sense? Because, of course, he's got a mixed farm. He's got sheep. He's got beef and cropping going on. A variety of projects, but it it sounds like there's excellent peer interchange of ideas and discussion amongst the community more broadly, even beyond the individual research projects happening. Well, that's it. And that is the base behind a living lab. It's not the same as what we would think of in a traditional research or farm trial. We really have built basically, in this case, the current living lab, it's, it's almost like a community of innovators and bringing them together then with a wide variety of researchers from Agriculture and Agri-Food Canada who are um, answering some of the questions, but also answering some, some questions that are pertinent across all of agriculture that can be applied. So it really is about this discussion piece. So we really try to bring the producers together, co-develop it's a requirement to do it once a year. We have instituted it so that we're doing one session on farm where the producers are are getting a chance to talk directly with the researchers on their site, as well as other producers or other experts about what they're doing and whether there are 
things that can be changed or ideas that can be exchanged. And then we're, we also do one co-development session, as we call it, in person. And in fact, we're wrapping up on our third year of real on-farm trials and having our co-development on Friday. So we're bringing together all the producers and a number of the researchers and talking about what they've learned, what things that they would do differently, what they're ready to share immediately with other producers. That's excellent. And it's great to kind of have that. Typically, when there's a large-scale research project, you get results after like five years or something, whereas the continual discussion makes it It's an interesting way to conduct the research in that you can kind of change it on the fly. You're not stuck in with a specific hypothesis, I guess. I think that that is one of the the ways that Living Lab works. And it is, I'm not sure what the right word is, confounding, maybe, Mm -hmm. because we are very used to thinking about these research trials. You know, you replicate, you do it, you continue, you want to keep things the same. You want to control your factors and your variables and and get those results. The living lab is more of an evolution and that that does pose interesting situations for the researchers. And so it has been a learning curve for everyone. The other thing is just conducting these, the point behind a living lab is to do these projects with producers on farm you know, more or less at scale. So again, that comes into play. Getting results, we haven't been getting, you know, hard and fast results, that's for sure. Like soil sampling, there's still a whole lot of analysis to be done on some of these. We're looking at some of the microorganisms and things like that. There's a pollinator study that was done and there's still, they collected, I don't know how many kilograms of insects. So they're still analyzing those insects that they collected in 2021. So, you know, we don't have all of those results either, but the results we have are yield, farmer experience, their experience with the project, how the innovation works in their system. And they're able to to do those tweaks, which, you know, makes it, like I said, it's confounding, it's interesting, but it does kind of change up the rules around research. Yeah. Has that been a struggle for some of the researchers to entertain that flexibility? Yes. Yes, it is. I think initially, I think those were those were some of the struggles. I think we've had some really great relationship building that has happened over the since we got out in the field in 2021. It's been interesting to see that growth and those relationships and the ways that researchers have been able to address these variables that are happening and approaches that they're taking. So yeah, it's been a growth. A living lab does evolve. I I laugh and I've been talking about living lab to a lot of people and, you know, getting that idea that it isn't research per se. And one of the best quotes, and it's from Agriculture and Agri-Food Canada, I should probably attribute it at least to Chris McPhee from there. He's their innovation individual. And he said, you know, a living lab is an innovation project supported by research. So that flipping it on its head a little bit, and it it truly is, you know, how does this work? How does it work for producers? What can we do to improve it? And then finding the research to, to support and back that up. Yeah, because I know 
one of the issues with adoption of innovative practices is kind of the taking it from a more theoretical standpoint and bringing it mm-hmm. to and the reality of a field and what a farmer can do in a year. Exactly. That's one of the biggest pieces. And, you know, it all sounds good. And then we get a drought. And so, you know, one of the things was monitoring water quality. Well, it was great, except it didn't rain last year. Or we got it all in one weekend, those sorts of things. And and that happens. And so being able to bring that in to what the results are, you know, this is what happens. This is how the producer changed their practice or, you know, the cover crop didn't get planted. The conditions, you know, we had, we had that wet fall the one year that just things didn't happen. And, and, you know, producers know that that's, that's something farmers really understand. And so, yeah, that's, that's part of a living lab and it's never long enough. And yet, you know, how long can you, we ask a lot of our producers in a living lab. So we're lucky. You do need a, you know, to have a particular producer who is interested in sharing their results, who is interested in being involved, who has that time, or at least the inclination to provide that time. And, you know, a lot of these producers have been very popular for conferences and panels. And again, that's asking a lot. But, you know, through this, we've been fortunate with the organizations that support them. Yeah, it's it's been an interesting journey. It sounds fascinating. And I know whenever I read about one of the projects going on, it's truly innovative stuff because it is, it's probably going to inform research for years to come too. That's a really good way to say it because I think I would say some of the practices are, I won't say tried and true, but, you know, I think of the, the work going on at Henry's. And this is one of the things that we talked about, you know, Henry's isn't like Woody with his subterranean clover and he's got his Romo machine, like that's cutting edge. It's not ready for adoption yet, right? Something like Henry's where he continues, he's doing all this tweaking as he goes. And now he's going to have all this. And, you know, he also has participated in a number of other water quality studies. So linking those things together and being able to say, okay, here's the system that was used. Here's the water quality results from from this. And, you know, he participates in on-farm as well. So we've got that water quality monitoring. So the the innovations, the small, the tweaks, the the responses to the weather, those are going to be reflected then in the water quality. And then, you know, we've got things like what Brett's doing and, you know, wholesale doing large fields where he's planted his alfalfa and you know he takes one cut for the the forage and then he treats it as if it was going to be high quality forage again but he's treating it as high quality fertilizer so he's trying a few different ways to work that in then is does he work in the fall spring rota you know he's got a number of different options but he has found good success with it and that one has some opportunities it needs to continue to be trialed right is two successful seasons enough and again i think that's that's one of the differences too with a living lab and research trials we need now to see others take this on on those field scales yeah innovation these days gets talked a lot with agrobotics and technology but even the small tweaks that you can make from year to year or 
from rotation to rotation. Innovation doesn't need to be big. Innovation can be anything that makes something better or that you you are a little more conscientious about what you're doing. Yeah, that perfect, Alex. That's exactly it. It's almost the difference between big eye innovations and, and small eye innovations. And I think producers, farmers are always innovating. Some are those, you know, trying completely new systems and, you know, switching up the paradigm. And others are adapting and tweaking and making it work. And, you know, I've worked in the environmental, you know, stewardship sustainability world in agriculture for a very long time. And it almost became almost like I had an epiphany after all these years that, you know, we really can't talk about best management practices the way that we historically have. They've kind of been, or maybe it's just me, but I hear others saying it, treating them sort of as a one size fits all, you know, a cover crop. Well, you know, you can think of this in, in funding programs. And I ran funding programs in the past with conservation authority. And did you do a cover crop? You know, is this a new practice? It's always a new practice. You don't plant the same cover crop every year, or some do, granted. But many producers, again, are tweaking, testing, changing. And just because a cover crop worked or didn't work one year doesn't mean the producer shouldn't try it again with a different system or doesn't need the support because it is a whole new system until they get those tweaks worked out and can fit it entirely into their system. And so best management practices really are a continuum and an evolution, I think, with, for every producer. And um, that's been something I've, I've really been able to see and internalize in the last couple of years is we need to speak of them differently. Yeah. Even within cover crops, there's so many different crops. And you have, I think it's Amber Holland who always says you have to go in with a goal. Like you have to kind of already know what you want out of it before you even start, because otherwise it is that one size fits all mentality. And that might work sometimes, but not often enough to probably make you want to continue with the practice. Exactly. Exactly. And back to the living lab, I think about the different cover crops that are being used or variations of a cover crop that are being used. And, and each of the producers has a different goal and a different approach. You know, Henry, Henry plants buckwheat for a variety of reasons. He'll, he'll tell you, you know, it, it, it looks good. It looks pretty. The bees like it. And, uh, you know, it is a third crop on those years that it goes in and works on top of all the soil health and water quality benefits. Woody is got the subterranean clover as a perennial cover, if you want to call it that, but planting green. And we had this discussion with Woody and he was talking about, because he started with white clover, I believe. And really he said, I shouldn't be looking at forages that work now, because what I want is a forage that doesn't prosper quite as well, that'll stay and, you know, keep roots, but I don't want one that flourishes the same way you would if you were Brett, who wants a forage, alfalfa, other, you know, he wants something that's going to really flourish, feed his crop the next year, because he's using it in a different way. So they've all got different goals. It's excellent. And it's very it's exciting for me to see how passionate you are about the project. 
I, I laugh. I say I've drank the Kool-Aid. Um. <laughs> <laughs> this episode is brought to you by Intruvix Herbicide from FMC. Intruvix gives you the best of both worlds, fast burning activity and long lasting systemic action for more consistent broadleaf control pre-seed to wheat and barley. Intruvix works fast and keeps going. A group 14 component boosts and speeds up the initial burnoff, while the group 2 component provides long-lasting activity right down to the root with no regrowth. Intruvix controls more than 30 of the toughest broadleaf weeds, including group 2 and 9 resistant kochia, narrow-leaved hawksbeard, glyphosate-tolerant volunteer canola, wild buckwheat, and dandelion. Ask your local retailer for more information. Can farmers still be involved with Living Labs Ontario at this point? Are there any new intake periods coming up? So interesting that you should ask this. The current Living Lab is ending. Agriculture and Agri-Food Canada, when they launched the group of Living Labs that we're currently in, they had launched four, I believe. It was PEI, Eastern Prairies, Ontario and Quebec. And, and that was for the first five years, which wraps up March 31st of 2023. Last year, they did an intake for applications to launch new living labs in the other provinces under the Agricultural Climate Solutions. And uh, those labs are all launched and, and you can check them out through AAFC Living Labs or ACS, I guess, Agricultural Climate Solutions. And they have just recently closed an application for living lab applications to have new living labs in Ontario. And we're hopeful. So we will, we actually already surveyed a number of producers or had a survey out through a number of different organizations in the fall. And we were overwhelmed with the response, considering that we had a survey out and focus groups right during harvest. Timing could not be avoided, unfortunately. And uh, there's a lot of interest in, in looking at best practices for reducing greenhouse gas emissions and sequestering carbon in agriculture. And we're hopeful that we'll be able to continue. We have a whole new suite of partners, not to say that we aren't going to work with, with some of those other partners, but revamped, taking some of the lessons learned. We're hoping to engage more producers and uh, we have our fingers crossed that we'll be able to work with a whole new group. Well, the existing ones in a whole new group or whoever wants to continue on and continue to, to look at ways to, you know, address both environmental sustainability and economic profitability. And I, and I think that that really was driven home in our current living lab, but all best management practices. But that's certainly we're, we're putting that forward as, as an important factor in the next living lab as well, should we be successful. Keep our fingers crossed, because I, I really do think there's so many benefits to this. It's totally worth keeping going. And the next one, too, we're looking certainly at engaging cross commodities and ensuring that the practices are um, important both to livestock and crop production. Because, again, you know, when you look at GHG and carbon sequestration, reducing GHG emissions and carbon sequestration, it is on a whole farm basis. Even though the BMPs are implemented shall we say, field by field or practice by practice, whether it's manure storage or, or grazing or nitrogen application. But to address these big picture things, it really is taken on the whole farm. So where on the 
the farm can you sequester carbon that doesn't impact your economic profitability? Are there areas that that can happen? Where is it most effective to reduce your GHG emissions? Are there areas where we can, or practices that can be specifically looked at? Of course, nitrogen management is the big one right now with reducing emissions by 30%. So we're hoping to put some of those research results that we've seen from, you know, Craig Drury and, and Claudia Wagner-Riddle to the test on, on real farms and get some results that can be shared because creating faith in research is also really important. And that's why it needs to be done on farms with producers who are willing to talk about the successes and, and the negatives, the where things failed. So that's that's kind of where we're heading and, and building off what we've already accomplished. Excellent. I imagine there was a bit of demystification between researchers and producers when they had to interact so much too. Yes. And that's why that's another amazing thing about Living Lab is the relationship building. And amongst the organizations, amongst the researchers and the producers, that's been one of the fun parts. I mean, we've we've all learned from each other and shared kind of best practices and and ideas. So, you know, Ontario Soil Network, Innovative Farmers, Ecological Farmers, everybody has picked up a few tips and tricks on their communication plans and running panels. And, and so for the groups, it's been a living lab for that in many ways. Like, how do we, how do we engage with people? How do we, how do we get things that are interesting to producers? And so we've all learned, I think, a lot from each other and, and have innovated some of those KTT ideas. We brought different speakers to different conferences. And that was really interesting last year, you know. IFAO brought Ken Lang to their conference and EFAO had Greg Vermeer speak at their conference. So finding common ground has been a real theme, definitely a real theme, and that we hope to continue. Excellent. Just to clarify, when the project first began, did the producers, did they submit them as proposals? Uh, it kind of predated me. So, but I will say what I believe happened in this current one was the organizations went out and who were engaged and brought producers to the table that had projects. So they did that groundwork. Our next time around, we have some areas to focus on, obviously, that we want to look at. We did the consultations in the fall. We asked producers what their questions were about a whole suite of best management practices. And that itself was really interesting to hear what was keeping them from adopting, right? Because the next one really looks at how do you push adoption? What answers do people need to know that it will work on their farm or to be willing to test it on their farm and, and adopt it? So we're really looking at that. So we'll be looking for producers. We already have a bit of a framework. What type of farms we're going to be needing, sheep, beef, pork, grain farmers, ecological farmers, it crosses all. Dairy farmers are engaged and, and so we'll want to reflect all of those different commodities in the producers and reflect the BMPs that are, are kind of the best bets for, for those groups to, to tackle those issues. Excellent. Where can farmers find out more information about the current project? Uh, the current project, you can visit any of those partners' websites. You can go to oscia.research.org and uh, 
we have quite a bit of information there, a number of the videos and panels and uh, past things that we have done, as well as a description of what's going on. And again, IFAO, EFAO definitely have quite a bit of information on their websites as well about the Living Lab. And of course, AAFC, Agriculture and Agri-Food Canada, a little broader, not specifically about our Ontario one. Yeah, in case growers want to look outside of the province and see what other living labs are doing too. Exactly. Is there something that you don't get to talk about with, about the project because no one ever asks the question? Oh, I think probably one of the things that I try to really talk about is is the importance of having all those different perspectives. I mean, that is a core piece of Living Lab. And I mean, one of the things that was unfortunate for our Living Lab, you know, if we want to, you know, air our dirty laundry, was that we did not get started right away. And we got started during COVID. So in fact, I think we could have made a lot more, we would have made more progress had we been able to get going before COVID hit. In fact, the first co-development meeting was held, I think, early March of 2020. And the next week, I believe, was the shutdown. So our producers and researchers and group, I, to this day, have not met every single one of our producers in person. Wow. But for the first, at least, year and a half, maybe longer, we held our first field day at Ken's, I believe, in 2021 was his, I believe. And I think we were able to hold one at Brett's. So we were really constrained. And that caused, like our co-development meetings, we held with a selfie stick. You know, two Agriculture and Agri-Food Canada folk would go out to visit each producer. And they had a selfie stick. They were meeting outside, regardless of the weather. And then there'd be 30 researchers on screen. Oh, wow. That did not generate the type of relationship building that we needed to establish a strong start. So there were some hiccups along the way, not that people weren't getting along, but to develop that trust and willingness to share and all those things, you can develop it virtually, but certainly not in a group of 30. So you know, I really wish we'd had the opportunity to meet in person a number of times and to uh, collectively bring people together. I think we did a really good job, as so many organizations did, of, of figuring out how to do this virtually. And our producers got very familiar, as many have, with, you know, presenting their information and participating virtually. And I mean, the good thing is, you know, it doesn't take up as much time. But I think the constraints we had with COVID at the beginning, you know, some of the scientists couldn't even travel because of the travel restrictions through the, you know, different organizations, the levels of government. So they couldn't get out to the farms. And, and that really did restrict, you know, the amount of work that could get done. And Thanks that for tuning in to Input, the podcast Once by we Top got Crop over Manager. That, we to could hear really more see great research and perspectives from and, industry and experts, visit topcropmanager.com yeah, slash so podcast. I would say if or I catch up on past episodes lab, wherever you listen to podcasts. It, but I do think, too, uh, accolades go to all of the individuals involved, just like all other parts of our lives. People learned how to navigate the world in a different way.